Then we're going to start with our message this morning, John chapter 19. You're saying, but that's not Daniel. Well, it's Communion Sunday. And so always on Communion Sundays, I go to the communion theme that we're on. And we started this back in January. And usually it takes us about a year and a half to go through a communion series. We've done that on Isaiah 53. We've done that on uh, Psalm 22. We've been in other places. This one, uh, we started in January, is called One Savior, One Cross, and Seven Statements That Changed Lives. In other words, the seven statements of Christ from the cross. And our first look at this back in January was in Luke 23:34, where Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. The second time, and some of you might not have known this, but on Good Friday, we had our second one. Uh, usually on Good Friday, we have a communion service. And that was the phrase from Luke twenty-three forty-three: Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Talking to the thief next to him. Today, today we're in John chapter 19, verse 26. And 27, we're going to look at the third phrase. By the way, it will be all the way till Good Friday next year when we finish the series. Just so you know. Uh, there's that many more communion messages yet to go. But John 19, 26 through 27. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. That's the phrase, those are the phrases we're going to look at here today. Heavenly Father, help us with our study. As always, we are dependent upon you to understand what we read in this book. Please guide us in our understanding. Help us to grasp it. Help us to apply it. And to change us, Lord, as you're at the work of doing, to be uh, what you have made us to be. Thank you, Lord, for our opportunity now to study from your word. Pray your blessing on it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were to go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are the four Gospels. And those four Gospels are the record of the life of Christ here on this earth. Uh, many of them start with his birth and work all the way up to his ascension into heaven. A few of them start at the beginning of his ministry. And John happens to go all the way back to eternity past. And he talks about Jesus before even the world was created. Um, that's a pretty big spectrum of time that he deals with. But uh, what I find very interesting is in John's account of the crucifixion, it's rather brief. It's rather brief. It starts just here in chapter 19. And it goes from verse uh, 16 to verse number 30. That's about 17 verses long. That's a pretty small portion of time that John is talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. According to the Gospel of Mark, that time spanned six hours. Six hours that Jesus was on the cross. So much more could have been said about that. Even John would tell you that as he 
put the ending on this book, he says, there's so much more I could have said about the life of Christ. There's not enough books in the world to cover the whole topic. But in this, he recorded some of the things that uh, he wanted to, just a handful, if you will, of events on that cross. One was that Jesus was crucified between two thieves. A second thing he mentions is that Pilate put a sign above his head, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. A third had to do with the soldiers dividing up the garments of Jesus. The fourth is what we see today, the dialogue between Jesus and John and concerning his mother Mary. The fifth thing he talks about is the fact that Jesus asked for a drink because he was thirsty. And the last is that Jesus declared it is finished and he died. That's all he records of the entire crucifixion. But it's rather interesting because when he talked about the two thieves, well, all the other gospel records did that too. And when he talked about Pilate's sign over his head, all the other gospels said that too. When he told that the soldiers divided up the garments, yes, all the other gospel writers said that too. But this dialogue we look at today with John and Mary and what Jesus said to them, only the Gospel of John records it. I think that's rather interesting. And that had me asking a simple question. Why? Why? It looks like a pretty important thing. And so we're going to walk through it here. And why did John seem to be very select in covering this event, this choice to record this from the cross? As far as we know, he was the only disciple present at the crucifixion of Jesus. As far as the record shows, the other disciples had scattered the night before. Uh, Peter was the only one that kind of hung around, and then he got into a lot of trouble, and he denied Jesus. And it says that he went out and wept. Wept bitterly is the term they actually use. So, uh, we do know that they all eventually gather up in the upper room, and there's where they're hiding when Jesus is resurrected and comes to meet with them. But at the cross, the only record we have is of John... And John doesn't even call himself by his own name. Throughout his gospel, he just refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And that's the term that we have come to understand to be one for John. But Jesus had other relatives, didn't he? Besides just the disciples, we are told that Mary had other children, brothers and and sisters that belonged to Jesus. They were what some people call half-brothers half-sisters, but the gospel records that there were several of those. We believe that James, not not the, the James of the disciples, you know, James and John, but the James that we read of in the book of Acts, the leader of the church of Jerusalem, the writer of the epistle of James, we believe him to be one of the half brothers. We also believe that the epistle written by a guy named Jude was another one of his half-brothers. But according to the record, they had not even been saved at this point, at the crucifixion. And according to our record, none of them appear to have been present at the crucifixion either. 
John actually tells us who is present in that crowd. He says in chapter 19, verse 25, Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother Mary, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. I could imagine their conversations, can't you? So, Mary. Yes, Mary? Oh, let's tell Mary. There's three Marys here. I think that's kind of fun. Um, but we have Marys here. And it's interesting, when they mentioned Mary Magdalene, they said, and the other Mary. The other Mary. And that doesn't seem to be Jesus' mother, Mary, when they say it that way either. So, it's fun to trace the chain of events all the way up from the crucifixion to the burial of Christ. And I find this interesting because when they took him from the cross and they wrapped up his body and they carried him and placed him in the tomb, it only records Mary Magdalene and the other Mary was present. They were the only two waiting outside. It would appear that John had taken Mary, Jesus' mother, home. It seems like sometime during the crucifixion or right at the end of it, he took her off the scene. That's understandable, isn't that? That would be very understandable. Well, at the resurrection, it was Mary, Magdalene, and it was the other Mary who came to the tomb. And by the way, it also says there was another woman there named Joanna, and some other unidentified woman was in the crowd too. But they came to the tomb three days later to put spices on it. But not Mary, the mother of Jesus. We don't have her coming with them to the tomb after Jesus had died. Now, some of these facts might be helpful in our search to understand the words of Jesus here on the cross. He said to his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. I'll give you several points today to consider. All of them are highlighting the fact that Jesus, even in his most extreme of suffering, didn't put his own struggles and concerns above those he came to minister to. This is what's amazing to me. Even up to the point of death, Jesus continued to show that he did not come to be served, but to serve, and even to give his life a ransom for the many. Consider this first thing as we go through here. Jesus made a statement that he did not come to abolish the law. You might remember that earlier in the Gospels. Matthew records that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He says in Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now we have a little bit of fun with that. You wanted to learn Hebrew. We can have some fun with that too. But in Hebrew lettering, there are little edges to letters. There's little pieces... All of them are significant because if you take one little corner off or one little foot off or one little dot off one piece or another, it changes the letter altogether. And of course, in Hebrew, you don't want to lose those little dots. That's what makes sometimes old, old manuscripts so hard to read 
because they're faded and they're spotted and they're yellowed and they're wrinkled. And you get to a word and you can't see that little dot or that little edge or that little piece. And then you say, I don't know what that word's going to be because it's been, you know, altered in such a way. Jesus says, I'm going to fulfill every little last piece of the law. And in all that, it's very interesting because throughout the crucifixion record, the gospel writers are constantly saying things, like Matthew would, and John even does too, how this event or that event fulfilled what was said concerning Jesus by the prophets or said about Jesus in the law. These kind of things they keep bringing up. But if you go back to the law and make it real simple, the Ten Commandments. We, of course, know that Jesus fulfilled all of those perfectly. But right in the heart of it, right in the middle of it, was some phrase that went like this. Honor your father and your mother. Isn't it interesting that that honor, that respect, that that value, Jesus didn't say, well, I'm being crucified anyway, so I'll just let that one slip. I don't want to imply here that the other children of Mary did not value her or respect her. I'm just simply making a point here that Jesus didn't fail on any issue regarding the law, even down to the fact that he made provisions for his mother while he's dying on a cross. That stops me and makes me think. You know, I can injure my finger and forget about everything else in life. You know how that is? We just get so occupied with our pain. and so I can't even fathom the pain he had on the cross. And even breathing itself was so difficult. And yet he took the time to take care of his mother. To make this statement. I suppose he could have talked to John about this at any other time prior to this. Because he knew that his mother was going to need this kind of ministry in her life. He could have talked to her, to John while they were on a boat together. Or while they were walking or traveling through the countryside. He could have talked to him on numerous occasions about this. But he didn't. It wasn't an afterthought. And I'm sure of that. But in his infinite wisdom, he chose to provide for his mother while he's dying on a cross. I think that's rather significant, because how selfless is our Savior? How selfless. I want to go a little deeper than that, though, and consider a second point, too. We may never fully understand the anguish of Mary at this moment in history. That's that's the thing that's hard for even uh, mothers and fathers today. Some of us have experienced the loss of a child. And that's excruciating. There's nothing more difficult than that. But there's something else that Mary had to endure here. If we go back to Luke chapter 2, and you could turn there. It's not that far from where we are right now. Put your bookmark here. We'll be right back. Now I've got to find my bookmark. I know I've got one. There's one. Okay. Go back to Luke chapter 2. This is a a record just after Jesus had been born. 
And Mary and Joseph were bringing Jesus into the temple. Uh, that was part of the, the requirements of the law concerning circumcision and her uh, sacrifice that she had to bring as well. There's a lot of uh, things they had to do by nature of the law. And so Jesus is presented at the temple here. Luke 2, start in verse 21. And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angels before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to, to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light of revelation, revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at these things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Watch. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Jerusalem, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed." You hear that for the first time, imagine yourself standing there, and your first question is, what? What does that mean? We know Mary was a ponderer, right? That's a good word for it. She pondered these things in her heart. She pondered these things in her heart. I, I like that, that it said about her this. Do you think she ever forgot those words? I'm going to guess she probably thought about them a lot. And wonder, what does that mean? What could that possibly mean? Here is Mary, a lady who has talked to an angel. It's pretty cool. She had given birth to the Son of God. She had heard a message from shepherds. She had seen the wise men. She raised Jesus up as a child. She saw Him begin His ministry. We do not know how much of the ministry she actually witnessed, but we do know she was there at the wedding day when Jesus turned the water into wine. And I know, as a parent, it's easy to get excited when you, you're seeing your child develop and start to succeed. You know, that's always exciting, Right? Now they're not the last person in the race, but now they're the first person who crosses the line. Boy, is that exciting. 
to see them gain some sort of uh, merits in their education. They're on the honor roll. They're on the, the college honor roll. They're on the president's honor roll. I mean, those are pretty neat, exciting things to see. And you get so proud of your child as they develop and as they succeed. But now here's Mary standing at a cross. All the things up to this point she had watched, they looked so positive, perhaps. But she stands at a cross now, and she sees her son being crucified. Okay, mothers, turn on that thing inside your heart, whatever that is, that you know what this feels like, to some degree, to see your child suffering, and you can do nothing about it. She is witnessing her son being crucified. Perhaps she was there long enough to see them draw a spear and pierce his side to prove he was dead. Could that be the pain that was prophesied way back then of her own soul being pierced by a sword? It it seems like a natural thing to say. However, when we looked at that passage we just read, Simeon said this, He blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a soul will pierce even your own soul. Jesus was appointed for the rise and the fall of many. For the fall, perhaps, probably, a good reference to the prideful religious leaders of his day. The rise of perhaps the outcast and the lame and the blind and the tax collector and the demon possessed and the women in sin. How many of those he lifted up out of degradation and and gave them a new relationship with the Heavenly Father. Jesus was assigned to be opposed. How often it was true, the responses of his teaching, especially when he claimed, and they understood he claimed to be the Son of God. All of these things is interesting because at the center of every single decision was Jesus. The centerpiece of whether or not a person responds or rejects, it was Jesus. It all comes down to the fact of this, that There are no merits, no bearings that we have in our position with God, but belief in the Son as the centerpiece of our faith. There's nothing else. Mary, listen, had no merits that anyone else had. She had no additional merits in order to secure a place in heaven. In other words, Some church groups, we know, go far to venerate her, to make her the centerpiece of their faith. However, being the mother of the Messiah does not gain salvation. It does not. Seeing shepherds did not save her. Hearing the wise men did not save her. Talking to an angel, that doesn't save her. Witnessing miracles, even standing at the crucifixion, was not something that could save anybody, particularly Mary. But here's what Mary had to do. She had to come to grips with the fact that privileges do not make a believer. They do not make a believer. She, like all others, had to acknowledge faith 
in Jesus Christ as her Savior. Do you think that was easy? I don't know that it was. I know she acknowledged that when she said in her Magnificat, is the word we use for it in Luke 1, My soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. But this prophecy we just read says this, and it's interesting. It says that Mary's soul would be pierced by the sword. Not a prediction of physical death, but perhaps the realization that salvation, even her own salvation, would be realized through Jesus alone and nothing else. And that's where the truth of the gospel gets down between the soul and the spirit, the marrow and the joint and the tissues inside a person. Only the Lord's word can penetrate like that. It's called a sword. It's called a sword. Even at the cross, seeing your own son dying there had to be intensely painful. Intensely painful. But as to a ponderer, if she understood, this death and this son had to come to a place where God's ultimate plan of salvation was being accomplished. Did she know Jesus would come to be the Savior? Yes. Did she understand what he'd have to endure to be that? Wow. She's a ponderer. Just think, a, a prophecy given to Daniel or to the Apostle John in Revelation would render them sick for days or would have them fall faint at the foot of the messenger. How much more would the soul of Mary be torn apart by the realization that this is the moment that was promised about the Savior and about His coming and about His death? She would have understood that if the Spirit's leading her at that moment to understand, here it is. And how that would have pierced her through. I don't know if I'm giving too much to this. Someday we'll find out. If you just keep that in your memory when we get there, you could ask her and say, was Pastor Bob right? Hmm. This thing I do know, though. This I do know. Jesus took particular pains to make sure that Mary was ministered to at that cross and for the days to follow. Why did he select her out of everybody else who was grieving at that cross? How selfless was our Savior to meet her needs in placing her in the hands of John because she needed ministered to. The grief that she bore was beyond words. I want to consider a third thing, though. Those two things I pondered at a little bit as I was studying this through, and I thought, wow, Lord, this is a pretty deep concept. I didn't realize how deep it was going to get. But here's the third thing I also thought about while I was looking at this. Not only did Jesus minister to Mary, but he also ministered to John. When he said, woman, behold your son, he then turned to the disciple whom he loved, that's John, and said, Behold your mother. You may say, Well, what's, what's that got to do with the... How does that help John? <laughs> Added mouth to feed, right? Another burden to carry. Another concern for John. Well, let's think of it this way for a minute. If you read the life of Martin Luther, you'll find that he was destined to be a lawyer. 
His father wanted him to be a lawyer. It's something his father was very quite proud of. But we read that uh, Luther went on to school. He was training to be perhaps one of the finest lawyers that ever came of his day. And yet Christ started a work in his heart. And there's more to the biography, and I'm not going to tell you all the details. You'd love to read it. It'd be a good one for you to pick up. But uh, Luther's response was to turn his back on the future. To quit the study and the practice of law. And step away from his father's desires. To give away all of his books and all of his possessions. And as his desire was at that time, to enter in a monastery empty-handed. That's what Luther did. Generally, the picture I just bring from that is that when one gives away all that they have, it shows that they have set their course. They've set their course for their life, and nothing will change their resolve. They've given everything away. At the scene of the cross, John does not record this part, but the other Gospels do. The fact is that Jesus was being severely mocked by the crowds. You remember? In Mark chapter 15, a couple of verses here, verse 29 through 32. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. And those who were even next to him, the thieves were also joining in and were insulting him as well. Now, I tried to put myself in in John's sandals here for a minute. What John is witnessing, he sees the mocking, he sees the Savior on the cross. And I wonder, because I think I would have wondered, When is Jesus going to prove them wrong? How many times did the miracles come that way? Oh, he's going to prove them wrong. Jesus is about to do something incredibly miraculous. He's going to stop all these mouths. He's going to put them all to shame. Jesus is going to have to come down from that cross and win the day. Why would John think such a thing? Well, I would. But John was also called the sons of, one of the sons of thunder. He had a way of saying things pretty quickly, and pretty powerfully at that. But here is John, perhaps, looking at Jesus and saying, okay, they scourged him. They're mocking with the, him with a robe of purple. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They struck him in the face. They tore out his beard. They spit upon him. They took his clothing. They nailed him to a cross. And now they're deriding him. They're insulting him. If ever there was a time to pull off the ultimate display of glory and victory and deity, now it is. Could you picture that? And perhaps even as he's getting to such a thought, Jesus starts to speak and he's like, oh, here he comes. And he says, Mary, John, Mary, here's your son. John, here's your mother. The final act of one who is resolved to go where he's destined to go. Maybe this was that point 
I said a lot of maybes, didn't I? I wasn't there, were you? I'm trying to put myself in this place and understand these things. Maybe this was the point where John finally realized that Jesus was going to die. It was not the act of one who is about to do something spectacular. It's not the phrase you say just before you do something miraculous and change the whole course of the afternoon. It's not a display of glorious victory. This is resignation. This is securing the path to one's death. To take Mary was to take the last possession of Jesus. Everything else had already been given away. How hollow the former words must have sounded in John's mind. How often the disciples said, Master, you're not going to die. Even Peter spoke up for them on several occasions. Forbid it, Lord. Forbid it, Lord, that this should ever happen to you. How confident it must have been for them. Every time they walked away from a miracle where Jesus healed a blind man, they they said, boy, we've got the right side here. Or when Jesus walked back from a cemetery with Lazarus on his arm, they thought, whoa, this is really a great score for our team. Jesus was a hero, but dying on a cross had to have been an enormous struggle for John. Enormous struggle for John to witness this. While all the while he's settling in his mind the interest of men. Come down, come down, come down. And not the interest of God. John had to let it go too. Something bigger was happening here. Jesus had given to John the last of his belongings, his own mother, so that he could take the resolved steps to minister to the needs of all mankind and to die for their sins. How selfless is our Savior to minister even to the needs of John while he suffered intensely on a cross. These three things I've been trying to understand, and I'm not sure I've fathomed the depth of any of that yet. I might ponder it for years to come, just to try to figure out what's the full extent of what Jesus is saying here. I can't say for sure, but I do know this. Our Savior didn't go to the cross for Himself, but for you and for me. That's why He went to this cross. He ministered from that cross. He ministered to the needs of of those who were at the scene of that cross. And He did it, what only He could do. He secures forever our salvation through His selfless act on that cross. He was ministering to you and me too when he died on that cross. If you've never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to say something. You are missing the most remarkable ministry to your own soul. It's what Jesus has done for you. The same Jesus is the one who loves you like he loves me. And he gave himself up for you like he gave himself up for me. He seeks to minister to your greatest need. And do you know what that is? It has to do with sin. It has to do with the forgiveness of sins. It's a penalty, a price tag we can never pay. But he did. He did 
He paid for your sins and paid for my sins at the cross. He set up forgiveness for us. He set up a relationship for us before the Heavenly Father. He is the only way, Scripture says, the only truth and the only life, and no one comes to the Father but through Him. He did that for you at the cross. He ministered to you, just like you ministered to others. I love this phrase in Hebrews chapter 4. It says in verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, that's Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore... Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. I showed you a couple of pictures today of how Jesus ministered from the cross. And if you have come to know Christ as your Savior, He's ministered to you at that cross too. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, that's the ministry He's extending to you right now. You can know Him. You can know the forgiveness of sins. You can know eternal life. You can know that you're a child who belongs to the Father. You come to Him. No merits. Nothing that you earned. No special privileges. Just a sinner saved by grace. That's what He offers to you. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? We can find grace to help in our time of need. One Savior, folks. One cross. But seven statements that would change lives. And that is significant. Because if you're not saved today, you have a Savior waiting to meet your need right now. He's waiting right now. And the only question is, will you turn to Him? Will you turn to Him? If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know that. You've come to know Him as your Savior, and you're rejoicing even at this moment, saying, yes, He ministered to me at that cross too. That's what this communion service is all about. It's a reminder. We need the reminder, don't we? We need the reminder that Jesus Christ gave Himself for us. That cup, He says, this is, My blood, which is for you. The bread, he says, this is my body, which is for you. They're just reminders. This this cup here, this bread here, there's nothing uniquely special about it at all, except that it's a reminder that Jesus did this for us. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, we want you to partake of it. When it comes your way, take it with a thankful heart. Yes, He loves me, and this is what He's done for me. I know it also brings us that point where we stop and say, Wow, look what I've done for Him or against Him. We do talk about our own sins when we sit and pray. I've seen your faces. I've seen how quiet it gets in the room while you're holding that bread in your hand, realizing Jesus died for my sins. Wow. Wow. He died for my sins. He gave His blood. Wow. It's a heavy thing to contemplate. But this will not save you. Only Jesus will. So I offer that to you this morning as I'm going to invite the men to come forward, please. 
who assist today. We're going to partake together. If you know Christ as your Savior, please take the, the cup, take the bread, rejoice with us, be thankful for what He has done. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, let it pass. Just let it pass by. But in that very act of letting it pass by, think about what you're doing. You have the opportunity to understand Jesus Christ is your Savior. To know for sure that it's possible. You can call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. That's the promise of Scripture. I don't want you to pass that by today. If you don't know Him, turn to Him right now. Receive Christ right now. Talk to the Heavenly Father. He'll hear you. I guarantee it. He always hears that request. But if you just let it pass by, think about why. All right. We're going to share together in our communion service.